Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. Before we jump into the show, I want to let you know that my signature course, Brand Strategy 101, is now open for enrollment inside the Brand Design Masters Academy. This is a foundational course for creative professionals and entrepreneurs who want to get started with brand strategy so you can sell bigger projects, increase your fees for the creative work you already do, and get paid for the thinking and advice you've probably been given away for free. The moment you enroll, you get immediate lifetime access to seven modules of training with over eight hours of instructional videos, 25 lessons in all, plus 24 downloadable strategy tools and conversation guides. In Brand Strategy 101, I've taken complex strategic methodologies used by the world's most respected global branding agencies and crafted them into a deceptively simple turnkey process and toolkit that you can use with your clients, even if you've never done brand strategy before or don't know where to start. Brand Strategy 101 draws from my 25 years of experience working with clients ranging from entrepreneurs to small to medium-sized businesses all the way up to the Fortune 100. So if you're ready to up your game and bulletproof your career and protect your business from the downward pricing pressure of sites like Fiverr and Upwork, then Brand Strategy 101 is the place to start. Just go to philipvandusen.com slash BS101 and enroll in Brand Strategy 101 today. Again, just go to philipvandusen.com slash BS101 and enroll now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. I'm your host, Philip Van Dusen, and I am super excited today because I have Louise Karsh with me today. And Louise, in an increasingly noisy marketplace, Louise makes it her mission to get brands the attention they deserve. An award-winning author of Word Glue, Find Your Million Dollar Brand Name, she names and renames brands doubling clients' income. Hmm, we're going to have to jump into that. She also just finished her first book on strategic taglines in the world. Wow. Okay, let's talk about that too. So please welcome Louise Karsh. Hello, humans around the world. And hello, Philip. So Louise, thanks for joining me. So we have a friend in common. We got together because of my friend, Amy McGlynn, who's a copywriter. How did that happen for you? How do you know Amy? I was coaching for Seth Godin in his courses, and she was in one of the courses, and she's just gorgeous. So I connected with her right away. And She is a gem. And, and if anyone is curious about Amy McGlynn, she's a copywriter, and she was just on a couple episodes ago. She totally checked that episode out. But so, Louise, we connected on LinkedIn because you know Amy, I know Amy, and um, you thought it would be great if you came on the show, and I thought it would be great if you came on the show, and I to a bit of naming in my agency. And naming is a very special thing. People do not realize how intense it is. <laughs> I'm really excited about talking to you about it. Number one, from the perspective of the process, right? The process of naming is really, it's, it's fun, but it, it can be intense and it, can, it needs to be very strategic. So I'd love to hear your perspective on like how you approach that. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you do? What's your superpower? My superpower is getting up early in the morning for this interview. Yeah. And then after that, because I am in Australia, I'm a recovering Canadian living in Australia. I think my superpower is deep listening. And when you're doing branding, the older you get, the more you understand it's strategy. Mm-hmm. 
And if you get a really strong strategy, everything is easier. And so naming needs to start with some really, really key questions. And for those people listening to the podcast who are thinking about what to do in their career, because you've been such a guide, Philip, for people in their careers. I came to this country. My existing career didn't work in this country. I needed a new one. So I had to look around and go, okay, where can I be a category of one? And uh, I'd always wanted to write a book. So I wrote the book, Word Glue, Find Your Million Dollar Brand Name. And it's the most generous naming book in the world. Nice. It's won five awards, I think. Six, maybe. And, 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 and awards in marketing and in the book industry. So both. And so that book, mm. I give away my superpowers. Because one day I'm going to be dead. And um, I don't want to have lived a small and generous life. And so the process I use is outlined in the book. There's 12 questions that I go through with the client so that I can really get a sense of who are they for? What's the change that happens when people encounter this brand? Mm -hmm. All to get at strategy and who's it for. So doing that deep work from status, how do people change when they encounter the brand to sentiment? What do you want people to feel when people say the name of the brand because the feeling, the mouthfeel, the sound symbolism of the word matters. Especially if you want something easy to trademark, you might make up a word. There's seven different kinds of names. We can get into that. There's 30, only 38 different kinds of names. We can get into that if you want to. But you know, I completely nerded out on words so that I could be an expert in that space. And then what happened is I realized that people would bring these brands to life with a beautiful logo, but they weren't using strategic taglines. And so I've written the only book on strategic taglines in the world. It's being used with my Australian clients now, and it has it just won the Axiom Business Book Award silver medal, um, and it won the Australian Small Business, it's the Australian Business Book Award for um, sales and communication. But my books, I I start them small. You asked about how I do naming, what my process is. I think what I'm trying to say is words matter. And strategy is a place to begin. So let me answer that that way. <laughs> I do brand strategy. Most companies that would pay for naming are big enough that they probably already have their brand strategy done. So what I have a question in terms of that. So say the company's brand strategy is established. What kind of a twist or nuance or like you were talking about how the brand makes people feel when they say it? Like, what kind of nuances around strategy do you really key in on when it comes to doing naming? Well, look, the big companies are going to go with the big agencies. They're not going to hire me. So they've already, you're right, they've already got the strategy. They've already got, you know, they usually have agency relationships that have a couple of naming experts. And there's only really a dozen naming, like true naming experts in the world. So I'm working with smaller organizations and they may or may not have the strategy done. So if they don't have a clear strategy, because a lot of companies confuse tactic with strategy. And so I can step back and go, okay, is this a real strategy? <laughs> like, is, are they really, do they really have a strong focus? Have they, re are they really standing apart in the marketplace? So I can start there and have deeper discussions. But like, let me give you an example of a name that I absolutely adore. There is uh, Tina and Michael Elias here in Australia. And their parents of three kids, they just had a, another baby uh, two years ago. And they're really concerned with the amount of 
waste, clothing waste, textile waste going into landfill because the fashion industry is the number one and number two contributor to and I have to just you'll have to check this fact because I might be wandering off in terms of whether this is true, but it's got a huge impact in terms of carbon. So they wanted to uh, make a difference there. You know, they were clothing manufacturers. They made socks. They uh, were actually originally called man rags because they did men's underwear and men's socks, but they were a full cycle organization. So they would, once your socks and panties had worn out, your underpants had a hole in them, they'd take them back and upcycle the textiles. So they needed a new name. And what we came up with is because they're upcycling, because they're making a difference, they're um, you know, a positive, uplifting organization, and they're dealing with apparel, they're apparel, U-P-P-A-R-E-L. Mm. So that name is lovely to say because up just feels good. It's got good sound symbolism. It starts their story. And you know they are now doing textiles for major brands like H&M. And if you've got trouble with you know fast fashion, well, they're collecting anybody's textiles and making a huge difference on the planet. So a name like that means that when they, they barely have to tell their story because, I mean, they do, but the, the name does the heavy lifting for them. So I'm really looking at what's a name that's going to make it easy to say, spell, mm. storytell, that's trademarkable because it's unique. Um, it, and it's not so much, sometimes I'm generating a thousand names to get the perfect name. And it's not sometimes generating names that's a problem. It's making the client comfortable with choosing the brave choice because brave is going to get noticed more than blah. So let me pause there because you've probably got a thousand questions seeing as you've done naming too. Well, the, one of the one of the challenges or hurdles that I come across in naming, especially if you're going to be doing any kind of international naming, is availability. Like every name has been taken, all the dot coms are taken, whether it's by a brokerage or you know. So it's very difficult to find, you know, to do a Google search of one of your name concepts and find no hits or something. It may be out of category, but you're going to find something of any word or any combination of words. So how do you deal with that? I mean, you may come up with a thousand ideas for a name, but then when you start, you get down to 10 and you start Google searching, eight of them drop out because you have a direct conflict, right? Well, that's why I love the design method of the seven methods. So, and that's when you're like a swatch or silk or apparel, where you're taking a root word like apparel, and you're dropping the first two letters and throwing in a couple of other letters to see what word you can create. So there's a whole bunch of different methods I use to check to see if I can generate something unique or I'm slamming together words to create a new combination of words that work for a particular sector. Hence the title word glue. So now it's making sense to me, the title of your book. Yeah, because I make brands stick. Yeah. Well, and you're also, you're slamming two words together. I mean, you're also doing a bit of uh, kind of word architecture in a way. That's exactly right. Yeah. So one of the things that you had in your bio that I was just really kind of, one of the challenges we have in the branding industry is that it's very difficult to prove ROI unless you have direct sales results as the result of a lift of an advertising campaign or something like that. Even rebranding of brand identities 
create a certain lift, but it's very hard to quantify unless you get a very clear before and after state. And that's a tough thing to do. How can you claim, you know, you're doubling your client's income with, in naming? And I don't mean to be like all 60 minutes on you here. And like, I'm not trying to like, <laughs> this is not a gotcha question. It's more of like, how do you quantify to your clients the before and after or the results of naming? Well, I get my clients to tell me their story. So I go back a year later and say, what's changed? So my first client, the reason why I actually went down this path, because I used to do career management. I had worked with Richard Bowles of What Colors Your Parachute, and I'd also done career management at the executive level all the way down to the guy in the or gal in the um, manufacturing plant. So I'd done a lot of that. So I understood branding. And that got me, once you realize personal branding and marketing are kissing cousins, I started reading tons of marketing. And um, when I left career management, I started to go towards branding because I had some basic skills that were completely transferable. So my first client, I'm a former figure skater. I had a Morton's aroma, which is nerve damage in the bottom of my foot. Who cares? I cared because I could hardly walk. So I'm in there and I can't remember the name of his clinic. What was the name of his clinic? Oh yeah, it was the TDG group. This is my first naming client, the TDG group. And I'm in there and I'm in pain and he asked me, well, what do you do? And I'm like, I make people like you money. I don't know. I would never usually talk like that. And he goes, well, what would you do? And I said, well, the first thing I would do is change your name. So his main referral source was doctors and he was losing. This is a guy, Colin Dombrowski, Dr. Colin Dombrowski. I did a PhD in lower leg extremities. How much fun would that be? And he had a name that wasn't serving him and he had people with less skill, less qualifications taking his market share because they have better branding. So in interviewing doctors, because he didn't really believe me that his name was a problem. So I, I showed the branding to, to doctors and got their feedback. So I could do a report. And then we did a naming session. So I went through the process that I have, which is even more robust now than it was then, because that was my early days. We came up with the name Soul Science, S-O-L-E Science. Well, bang, he's got a story that he can tell. He's the only one with a PhD in his region. It's based on science. It's about the feet. He gets a great logo. So we're talking S-O-L-E, not S-O-U-L. Yeah, S-O-L-E. Yeah, S-O-L-E, like soul. But then he also got a, a, a family. So he had Soul Science Academy, which is Training Institute. The Soul Science, he had Soul Symposium, Holiday Soul. So it just gave him a whole um, ecosystem for his brand. And his, his, let me just, oh, I'd have to look it up. But I increased his revenue, I think, by 170% over a year. And the only thing that changed was his name. So and I, what happens is when I change names, so I change the name of a college, and I ask, hey, what, what, how, how did your registrations change? This is a 100-year-old college that I changed the name of. Um, you know, th their stories go, go, they get more funding, they get more students, so they get more clients. And like, I just keep asking. I keep asking them, what, what's changed since your name changed? Um, I had one psychologist, uh, a group of psychologists who were doing wellness consulting, addictions consulting um, to organizations, government, you know, and they, they ended up doubling their revenue. They had to hire more staff. So the thing that happens is when you get a name, you get a new story. And when you get a new story, you're usually really tightening your positioning. And so everything just becomes easier. <laughs> and, it, and they, you know, they get the staff get excited first. They get the resistance, so you have to understand that when you're launching a brand. 
that you're going to have people who are, you know, who love the old name. You're going to have all sorts of any drama that's there will, will come out to play. So you have to help the CEOs understand how to manage change because all naming is all actually change management project. And lots of people don't understand that at first. So yeah, that was a very long answer. No, well, it's, <laughs> like you mentioned a couple of things and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to ask about that the whole figure skater thing I'd want to go into. But renaming a hundred year old college, like that made me think about the fact that, I mean, that college name is on a hundred years of diplomas and alumni and every book that's in the library and everything, right? So, I mean, when you change the name of a company, the investment is not just in you and, and a legal search for coming up with a name. It's changing every single physical thing that can be changed to something new. And so that investment kind of goes up by like 5,000%, right? How do you manage that recommendation? <laughs> Well, I love working collaboratively. My master's degree is in adult education. I've been an educator in different ways all through my life. So my role when I come to an organization is to give them the skills, not only to just generate names, but it's also to help them understand the power of words and language so they can generate names, so they can choose a name that they're comfortable with. So I use what's called a taxi team. I ask for three other people to work with me. I train them up. We name together, like it's a very collaborative process so that when we get to the end, the, the, the president of the organization um, understands the name so they can tell the story in a way that, that they feel really good and clear that we've got the right name. No, that's brilliant. So you've brought on some, some stakeholders and they've drunk the Kool-Aid by the time you're even presenting the name back, which is a huge amount of leverage to your presentation of the name back. So that's very smart. But also sometimes in that case, it was the president who came up with the name. So I got really, really close and I, I had told them what root word was key to keep. Mm -hmm. So the name of the college was, had WIA in the name. So WIA stands for Workers Education Association, which was an organization started a, more than a century ago in the United Kingdom. And it was to help, you know, shipyard workers get more education so they could read and write and look after their finances. So it, it, it traveled around the world, this WEA. So they were, they had a long name that had WEA in it, but it wasn't serving them. So they ended up being ATWEA, A-T-W-E-A. So they kept the root word and it was the word that they were saying, anyway, where do you go to school? At WEA. Okay. <laughs> so let's, let's surrender. <laughs> let's, let's use that. So they became at WEA College which because we're living in a country with so many indigenous nations, a, a word mix that's unusual is very easy on people's eyes and mouth here. So, I mean, that sounds like it was easy and obvious, but you know, the path to obvious can sometimes be, you know, yeah. um, a little long. So I had generated probably before that meeting, 600 name ideas. And they had all, each one on the team had generated a hundred or so, and we came together and did some more work. Um, but I'm so proud of that organization because they got a great story, they got a great name, and they're, they're such a beautiful, meaningful organization. They're working with youth at risk, they're working with people who've been, been displaced by technology in terms of employment. So when you get to name something that has real meaning, it just makes your heart sing. This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. 
byol.me is a top-tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At byol.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications, all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit byol.me forward slash Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's byol.me forward slash Philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. So when one of the questions in the mastermind groups I've been in have from entrepreneurs or specialists who are starting a new business is, should I name it after myself or should I name it, should I give it a company name? Do you have an opinion on that in terms of the benefits of giving it a name other than yourself? Oh, can I word nerd on this for a second? Can I grab a stat? The main one for me is that then it's transportable, right? So you you can sell it because you can't sell your own name. I mean, that's the obvious one. But is there a recommendation that you would give people to name it a company name rather than yourself? Or how do you feel about that? Well, I'm, I'm going to go to the stats. So just hang on a second. Let me get the stats. Um, so Jorge, this is like, <laughs> you, have to, <laughs> you have to memorize your own stats. So let's just get with this. One moment, please, caller. Your call is important to us and maybe monitor for quality assurance purposes. Um, yeah, okay. So Jorge Guzman and Scott Stern, they're professors at MIT. Some would argue that's the best university in the world. Um, I'm not going to argue that point. But they looked at the success rates of uh, businesses from 2001 to 2011. And what they discovered, because you know, what leads to a business's success? How do you tease out what creates, what's not causal versus um, relational? So what they discovered is that eponymous names, firms named after their founders, were 70% less likely to succeed. Short business names, one to three words in length, were 50% more likely to become prosperous. So then you can you can put a bomb through that statement I just made, but. You are going to remember Spoon Me as an ice cream company much more than you're going to remember Philip's Ice Cream Parlor. Mm -hmm. So I want companies not just to have a memorable name. I want them to have an unforgettable name. And there's a big difference. So yes, you're going to have a personal brand if you are an agency, especially if you're the founder. And depending on your um, predilection for a public life. Um, but if you've got a name that is easy on the tongue, easy to share, has got something unusual about it, then people, it makes it easier for people to talk about. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about the kind of the physicality of naming, because I used to do a whole lot of work in the, um, in the food industry. And you said something, you use a word mouthfeel, which was very familiar of the, my days in CPG because I heard that a lot, right? What's the mouthfeel? Talk a little bit about that sensuous or that having to do with the senses aspect of naming. Sound, mouthfeel, fluidity. Talk about the, you know, how you feel about the importance of that or what people need to keep in mind about it. Let me ask you a question. Who's thinner, Bill or Bob? You're thinking too long. Bill. Who's thinner, Bill or Bob? Yeah. Why is, why is Bill thinner than Bob? Because Bob sounds bigger. <laughs> yeah. 
So when you say Bob, so say Bob again and Bob. notice where your tongue goes. Bob. Yeah. So where does your tongue go? Bottom of my mouth. Yeah. So that O has got, it, it opens it up. Google feels like a big company because it's got big mouthfeel. And it sounds like, ooh. So if you want to, right. Like, so if you want something to sound small and intimate, you're going to have a, a, a sound that's small and intimate. If you mm. want your agency to sound big, well, then you might be using more open vowels. So the sound, like, let's talk about the food industry. You're competing on that shelf. And if your name doesn't pop out in some way, like if you've got Coca-Cola, you've got $2 billion you can spend on marketing. But if you're not Coca-Cola, if you're some smaller brand, you've got to get a way of popping out. You know, I named a um, kombucha full of probiotics. And I can't remember what the, the original name was, but I ended up calling it Belly Up because it was to improve um, gut health. Mm. Um, now, unfortunately, they didn't do a great job on the tagline, which is why I wrote a book on taglines, <laughs> which we could talk about too. So Belly Up is, is unforgettable, partly because it's like belly up to the bar. Um, and so they can start telling us about how to belly up to your health and they could do all sorts of stories that way. It tested really well. So you want people, let me talk about the brain here. So what happens with the brain when it encounters a brand is a attentional cue will be fired off or not. So a brand has to pull focus. And given that Alvin Toffler in 1970 said, we're entering an era of infobesity. That was in 1970! So we've got even more brands vying for people's attention. He wrote the book, Future Shock. So a, a brand has to pull focus. That's the first F. When it pulls focus and fires off an attentional cue, little neurotransmitters are doing their thing. And then it goes to a feeling. After that, it goes to the figuring out part of the brain. So focus, feeling, figuring out. The problem is when people make decisions about brands, they go, do I like it? Do I like it? Do I really like it? Well, that's figuring out. That's the wrong part of the brain. That's not the part of the brain that encountered the brand first. So belly up pulls focus. Then they can create text to create a story that makes people want to grab that particular drink. So I think it's really important to understand the neuroscience that's going on when people are naming because that can stop a lot of fights in the boardroom. So you talked about focus groups, right? It tested really well, you said. And so like in CPG and the consumer packaged good industry, they use eye tracking a lot. They also use eye tracking in website design to see what actually really honest to goodness happens. Now, do in focus groups, they are notoriously depending, it depends on your moderator who it is, but they can be very misleading, right? And sometimes people say something, but they end up doing something completely different. So when you're doing focus groups around naming, how do you dig underneath that, like what you just said about, you know, I like the brand, you know, in your New York accent that you did. But so how, how did you, how do you get to that, the neurological part of it in a focus group, right? Because you don't have eye tracking. You don't have any kind of quantifiable testing uh, methodology to work with around naming. What do you do in testing with naming? Do you like it? Yeah. Well 
No. <laughs> no, I never do do right. Because that's the wrong part of the brain. Yeah. So with that particular organization, so I do partner with agencies and they have their own testers. So I actually don't know how they tested that name. So I can't answer that. But I did name a career management company for youth, Inkly. And Inkly, we got the .com. It's a, it's a fun name. It's got good upfeel. And how they tested it is they have a, a 2,000 member um, community. And so they were able to, without telling them exactly what they were doing, they shared the name and they asked them to respond. When you say this word, what do you feel? What comes to mind? And so they got, they didn't know what they were going to get back. And they got, oh, it reminds me of Finding Nemo. You inked me. And, um, you know, it just makes me feel like there's some bounce. So they actually, they asked for sentiment. Mm-hmm. And what, when they heard things like, oh, you know, you inked me. Well, their, their site now uses uh, inked drawings to help bring the name to life. So, you know, sometimes when you're making up these words, it's very hard to do like a, and I should say my mother was a market researcher, founded, you know, did telephone room and questionnaires and, you know, was Canada's top market researcher. So can I call my mother in for this answer, please? <laughs> um, <laughs> Mom, what would you it's do? It's not a game show. I mean, I, I mean I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Testing is, depending on the size of the organization, they'll either have their own methodology. Mm-hmm. And if it's a smaller organization, then I'll give them, I'll figure out what they've got to work with and I'll figure out what questions they can ask to either choose between some names but it's never, do you like it? It's always what pulls focus? Where did your guy go first? And sometimes that means I'm doing split tests mm-hmm. um, where the names are in different orders to avoid primacy and recency effect. So, you know, I, I, I try and nerd out in a way that they're going to get the answers that they feel comfortable with. Yeah. And confident, not just comfortable, but confident. So you, the net, we're going to circle back to the figure skater comment. Right. So I'm always talking about people's nonlinear paths. A lot of creatives that I meet in the industry had very web-like careers rather than ladder-like careers because we have a lot of right and left turns, but they all make us stronger. So talk about, you know, very quickly, what were the webs that led from figure skater to naming expert? So I'm going to go deep. And um, I'm from Ontario in Canada, and there's this plant called sweetgrass, which is a beautiful, sweet-smelling grass that you can braid. And it's a sacred plant in many indigenous cultures. So the braid of my career has been creativity, has been education, and been service. So figure skating is a very embodied act of creativity. And the best story wins. So I would create a story on the ice through music. And of course, I had to execute the jumps and the spins and all the rest of it really well. But the best story wins. So, I mean, you know, I would skate to songs like uh, You Can Leave Your Hat On <laughs> by Tom Jones, right? Um, you know, I would, I would just try and create these. And sometimes you're slamming very small bits of different songs together to create this arc of a story mm. in two and a half minutes or more. The story comes through your body. And, and there's that moment, I mean, for skaters, you and actually creatives too. This is chicken work when you hit flow, 
where you're like, you are beyond the music. You are one with the audience. You're one with the music. You're one with the celestial angels and everybody in the audience stands up and, you know, you're like, oh, like, like, and it's just so beyond you. So in creativity, when you're writing, so sometimes when I'm writing my books, you know, have those moments of like, oh, losing time. When I'm facilitating really well and you're in that flow and you're losing time or, or you're not, it's not that, not that you're losing time is you're beyond time. And um, I think what skating gave for me is a real appreciation for um, you can go far on your own, but you can go, what is it? You can go fast on your own, but farther together, uh, the Maasai proverb. And so skating, you have a huge team around you. It looks like an individual sport, but it's not. And the same in anything in life. Like we, we think we're these solo creatures, but we're not. We're tribal. It's not me, it's we. So I think what skating gave me was a principle that I've used throughout my life. So when I was a skater, you know, I had a really good coaching, but I would also go down to Hackensack, New York, and I would hang out with Robin Wagner and Igor and Tatiana Moscovina from Russia. Um, and, you know, like my feet would bleed um, after, like I would be in the bathroom and I would like, just, I would I'd take my skates off just for a minute because my feet were so sore. And that was the first time I was like, oh my God, my tights are bloodied because I've been on the ice that long. So this, this, is, why, um, this is why Russian figure skaters um, are on the podium so much is they're kind of brutal in their training. But, um, you know, surround yourself with people who, and I preferred Robin Wagner style, the American coach. <laughs> but, you know, you got to surround yourself with people who are brilliant. So when I was doing career management, I, I got to know Dick Bowles, who wrote the best-selling career book of all time, What Colors Your Parachute, and I got to hang out with him. And I, so I saw who he was as a person. I saw who he was as a soulful man. I mean, he was an engineer, um, but he was also a, an Episcopalian priest. And I saw the way he treated the waiter, and I saw the way he treated his participants. But most importantly, he wrote practical handbooks. So my first book is a practical handbook. Mm. Dick Bowles has influenced me profoundly. And then when I headed towards marketing, who's the best guy in marketing? Seth Godin. So Seth Godin goes on my bucket list and I get to know Seth Godin and I work with Seth Godin and I'm working with Seth Godin right now on a project that I absolutely adore. So, you know, skating taught me if you want to be the best, you have to have the best around you. And that, that principle has played out in my life in numerous ways. And so you went from skating to what? Well, uh, you know, my, again, the career path is wide and all the rest of it. And I don't know if it's of that much value to, to the people in the audience, but you know, I, I did comedy. Um, I did a little bit of, um, theater direction, but that wasn't my core work. I did career management. I did, I was, I worked for the university. I did residence programming in a university that had a huge residence population. So, I mean, then I did a master's in education because I love learning. I, love learning and I love um, understanding the neuroscience of learning and oh gosh I did tons of community activism because I believe in being of service and um, so from career management to branding to naming and the latest thing is understanding how powerful and strategic taglines are beats so nice. I hope that you want to talk a little bit about that because taglines are a superpower that people have forgotten okay well, do you like writing them? Do you write them? I have written them, yes. Do I like writing them? Not particularly. Because <laughs> I'm not a copywriter. I mean, I can write, 
but I'm not a copywriter that way, like an advertising sort of copywriter person. I'm a strategist and, um, and I write great content, but in terms of writing snappy lines, that's not my forte. Well, and it's what I've discovered is it's not so much about the snappy line. So I looked at all the primary research and actually there's a huge statistic, like 94% of people, this is a Kylie study, K-I-L-E-Y, can't match a tagline and the brand. So that's not the point. People think it's like, oh, my tagline is carries a brand. Yes. You know, if you're Nike, just do it, carries a brand, no question. But if you look at um, ivory soap, 99 and 44, 100% pure, or Hallmarks, when you care enough to send the very best, care enough, all those campaigns, they, they, they get a tagline that I've discovered meets five criteria. So I'll tell you the five criteria all right. so that people who are creating taglines can know. And maybe I'll back up a little bit first. So strategy. Strategy is really, really important. Does the brand have strong market focus? Does it stand apart in the niche? If that's true, then it's easier to come up with a tagline. So I've got uh, a wine bottle on my shelf for ladies who shoot their lunch. Ladies who shoot their lunch is an amazing name for a brand. So in the olden days, all wine went with game meat. So this is the part where vegans <laughs> recoil are going to have a little trouble and thank you vegans for eating in such a way that's kind to the planet um but ladies who shoot their lunch matt fowles is a lawyer who left law and he wanted pesticide free hormone free food for his family well there's a lot of feral animals in australia that are um, not good for the australian environment deers rabbits so matt would take down that food and he's a foodie who'd want a good wine to go with it so he created ladies who shoot their lunch as a wine and they have a tagline are you game so the tagline are you game does exactly what blue ocean strategy says blue ocean strategy sold four million books and if you're not reading it please read it and coming up the blue ocean strategy is hard but strong marker focus wine to go with game meat stand apart in the niche it's a female facing brand there's a picture of a woman carrying a gun done in Art Deco Splendor on the wine label. And, you know, it, then they've got a strategic tagline, are you game? But that tagline is a pledge and a promise. So it's a pledge that they made as an organization. When they ended up in the UK market, they're like, take the dead deer off the back of the bottle. And they're like, nope, we're sticking to our guns. That's who we are. We are for local eaters who source their own food. Mm. And are you game as a promise? It's a promise to their audience that they can go up to the Strathbogie Ranges and have a free range dinner. They can um, learn how to use um, guns in a, a safe way to uh, eat ethically. So, what that does, are you game, is it creates tension, it sparks a story. So the story, I'll back up the, the five characteristics. It sparks a story. So that's the S. It creates tension. Are you game? Am I game? Am I game to try this wine? And it speaks to an identity. Am I somebody who eats ethically? Am I somebody who wants to see myself as a, a hunter-gatherer, <laughs> as a provider? And because so many women are buying wine, there's Lady Diana, right? The hunter 
not Lady Diana. There's the goddess Diana of the hunt. Um, maybe like daily. I don't think Lady Diana went hunting, um, except for I maybe a prince. But yeah, yeah. And then it's credibility. So the C is credibility. It, it's built on a truth. And K, keep it. So not only have they kept that tagline, so the best taglines have been kept for 25 years or more. So unless you're a billion dollar brand, like Coca-Cola can change the tagline every five years and probably should. But if you're smaller, keep your tagline. So those five criteria stick, story, tension, identity, credibility, keep. That's what I saw made the best taglines so powerful. And not only that, what I got so excited about is stick is not just a way to measure. So you can actually quantify, give a tagline a score in each of those five dimensions out of 20. You can also use stick to generate taglines. Mm. And that's been really exciting. Well, Louise, it has been awesome talking to you. I think we could go on forever, but we're reaching our time limit. And I promised you that I was not going to make you go through the rapid fire 10 questions. So I'm actually going to stick to my promise. As a wordsmith, <laughs> I'm sure you would get stuck choosing the perfect word. So we'll have to return to the rapid fire 10. But Louise Karsh, I appreciate your coming on and talking about word glue with us today and naming and taglines. And so where can people find you and uh, where can they find the book? Well, and I, this is the little superpower here. So they can find word glue and soon seven words that change everything, what smart companies will know about tagline at wordglue.co. So books are sold by me. I sign them. I mail them out. I phone people who call them. So it's a very personal one-on-one um, remarkable relationship because um, the kind of people who discover me, like you, um, like Chris Doe, like Blair Enns, like Seth, you know, this is an inner circle of people who are doing work that matters. And I just love serving them. So thank you for this great conversation. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show and best of luck with Word Glue. And I'm sure we will be in touch again soon. Thanks, Philip. And thanks for all you do for leveling up creatives around the world. Thank you. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com slash muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.